mountains. We all face them. Basecamp Live will equip you to conquer the biggest mountains when raising the next generation. Each week, you'll hear from culture watchers, thought leaders, and storytellers who know the tools you'll need to summit the peak and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. Welcome to Basecamp Live, and now your host, Davies Owens. I'm Davies Owens, and we are here in the studio today with my good friend, David Goodwin. How exciting. It is episode number one. I mean, this is the beginning of the whole thing. We just won't tell them that there were about 13 takes before this. Well, this, yeah. Well, hopefully this one won't become one of those. I have all hopes that this is really going to be episode number one, and someday we'll look back in awe that it all began in such a humble way. We're, we're here for the reason uh, of hopefully encouraging people. Some of our own journey, which we're going to share here in just a moment, is part of this process of discovering that raising up the next generation is maybe not uh, all that we thought it was in terms of just find a school and find a church and it all kind of comes together. There's something even greater and more exciting that I think people who are involved in raising up the next generation will be uh, inspired by and during our time. So, well, David, you and I have known each other for a while. Um, you were kind of, kind of, you were a business guy turned uh, educational expert. Uh, you were here at the Ambrose School uh, out in Boise, Idaho for a good decade, and now the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. So you've really jumped in headfirst into this thing. But there was a day where if somebody had said, hey, Dave, you're going to be the head of an educational association nationally. I don't know that that would have even been on your radar. No, education for me was a hoop jumping exercise. In fact, it was which hoops do you jump through to make the most money? <laughs> and so I kept working toward business and ended up with an MBA and worked in the business world for 15 years. And realized that isn't all it's cracked up to be. And you kind of you were doing it right. You were Mr. HP. I mean, you you traveling the world. You had things going on great. And uh, and and then you were doing what? You were kind of on the side doing a little church thing. And yeah, well, I had you know I'd grown up in a Christian home, and so I saw two two needs at the time. I had no idea that they were related. One need was for more depth with regard to. Uh, Christian young people. Uh, I worked with youth groups, and a lot of the young people really didn't um, see any need to deepen their their understanding of, of God. And the other was that in this particular part of the country, there isn't a really strong educational system, so we really needed a more rigorous education that would teach kids uh, more stuff and to know it better. Um, unfortunately, that was a wrong idea about education. So those two worlds, church and school, were just for you kind of two. They just were fine, but they were just kind of two. Right, they're two different two, things. They don't, they don't really different cross purposes. over. Yeah, you right. do church on Sunday, Monday you go to school, and you you know pray over your meal at dinner time, and you have a Christian family. Right, and when I first got into the classical movement, I was brought in because I saw thought, oh, uh, it scratches both itches. You've got a Christian form of rigorous education that teaches kids to think, and that's kind of a, uh, what classical education was sold to me as initially, and then I came to learn uh, otherwise later. You kind of had a second conversion. Yeah, sort of, yeah. I mean, it, after being involved for some time, like I, I've said, it wasn't an epiphany. There was no moment. It took years to develop an understanding of, of what this really is. But what I came to understand is that both objectives, the idea of spiritual depth and intellectual depth, are the same. They both are, are part of the development of the soul. Um, and that sounds, a, you know, sometimes almost a little bit not like what you hear in Sunday school. Um, 
you know, that's Christianity is a spiritual thing, and knowledge is a is something to go get know, a job. Yeah, to to do, to do jobs with. So anyway, that was the direction that I headed was to try and learn more about classical education. Ran into a guy who taught me more. And what did he exactly? What What was the big aha for you? Well, a guy by the name of Andrew Kern worked for us uh, in those days, and he um, challenged me by telling me that education was really the cultivation of virtue, which wasn't something I'd ever heard before and didn't seem like it could be possibly true. And did your eyes glaze over when he said that? Um, I think they did shortly thereafter. It sounds like one of those kind of pipe-smoking intellectual kind yeah. of things to say that no one has any earthly idea what that might even mean. Right. Well, and a lot of it was that I was raised to understand virtue as a synonym for morality. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, so what are you saying? We're going to put kids in school uh, six hours a day for uh, 13 years so that we can teach them uh, moralistic behavior, don't do this, don't do that. Um, that didn't sound very much like education. And then over time, I grew to understand that it wasn't Andrew's problem, it was my problem. It was understanding what he meant by virtue, understanding what he meant by cultivation. Uh, the fact that the soul of a human can be cultivated in, in a direction and should be cultivated in a direction. And the idea that that direction defines the nature of the child, and that nature is the virtue. And I, and I again, it, sound, it, it could be a little confusing. What are we really talking about? I think the average person listening, hopefully, is committed as we are to raising up a generation of, of students that go the distance. I mean, you read the statistics today, 80, 90% of kids that grow up in Christian homes and Christian churches get off to college, and they throw it all to the wind. There's, nothing sticks and part of that stickiness is that it's got to be more than just up in their head. They, it, just because they can play Bible trivia and win the game does not mean that they really know and understand and love following after Christ. Yeah, the cultivation metaphor was used by our Lord. He said, you know, if the seed casts along uh, the rocky soil and it's shallow, um, it, when the sun comes out, it gets scorched. Yeah. Surprising that's what happens to kids today is that they don't have depth in their understanding of the world because they don't integrate it with the knowledge and experience of everything. They only integrate it with their spiritual feelings, and it becomes something much more narrow and shallow. So that's where I was. I eventually, over time, started to realize these things. And then I realized that things like the intellectual virtues are part of education. And as I became the headmaster of the Ambrose School back in the early 2000s, I uh, even went deeper and started to realize that our practices and our actions and our habits and the way in which we form the community here, everything needs to be centered around this idea of cultivating virtue. And so that was sort of my story in coming to it and eventually then moving on to the national scene. Um, but in, in, in your case, you, you come from a little bit of a, a different direction. You um, were in the ministry world. So I came from, you know, I, I guess I've never put that together, but I came from the, uh, of the two areas, I came from the business side, you came from the ministry side, and we, we kind of connected at you that point. You were the for-profit, and I had the no-profit. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's how that works. Right, right. And so when we came together, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the, what are the old, uh, I'm not even going to go to old commercials. Nobody watches commercials anymore. It's all on YouTube, right? So I suppose so. So what was your, when you came into um, classical education, you came from uh, straight out of a sort of a, a real staple of a church ministry and missions, right? I came from a very yeah, I, very strange way. If you had, if I'd been asked, you know, twenty years ago, would you be involved in education? I'd say absolutely not. It sounds dreadfully boring. And I already did reading, writing, arithmetic, and I'm about changing the world for Christ, and I want to help impact the culture and all those good things. So I spent twelve years in local church ministry, and I loved it. But I was just faced the, the 
raw reality that I had about two hours a week to influence. And I thought, how in the world do you change people in any significant way when they're just here for such a short period of time? Ended up uh, having a stint working for Christianity.com and sort of the technology realm, did my doctoral work and sort of building online community and thinking there's got to be a way to bridge the time and space gap and connect people and and help form them in a way that will last and make them confident followers of Christ. And ended up with my little, the time little, although she's graduating this year, um, daughter who was going into kindergarten. And I was in Atlanta and I had been to, um, it's a whole nother story, but had been to several different public schools and private schools and sort of knew the the market, if you will, and knew that it just, there was something lacking there. Ended up uh, going to visit a classical Christian school in Atlanta as a dad put my little kindergartner in and thought, wow, this is great, little uniforms, they're polite, well-mannered, this will be perfect. And I just sort of assumed education was just basically a way to get my kid safely to 12th grade and off to a decent college. And in the meanwhile, we had a good church we were involved in. And these two worlds just didn't overlap, at least in my initial understanding. And somewhere along the way, I ended up on the board of the classical Christian school. And then during a headmaster change, I had a opportunity to step in as an interim. And I remember thinking, I promise this will only be part-time. I'm doing these big ministry things around the world with Campus Crusade, and I'm I'm doing big things. And this school thing is just sort of a nice thing for kids over on the side. And, and God kind of hit me upside the head and said, you know what? You got 16,000 hours between kindergarten and 12th grade to change a generation and because it is the primary place where influence is happening. And that really convicted me. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I Maybe I, I think I have this thing understood. And what's interesting, Dave, is, is you know my story. I was eventually the headmaster of this school for probably three or four years. And if you came to my open house, I sounded pretty convincing, but I don't think I even got it then. I don't think I understood that if you really want to raise up a generation that's not going to fall into those Barna statistics and, and not make it uh, as a Christ follower into college, it takes a deeper understanding of education than just reading, writing, arithmetic, and then here's Sunday school on the side. It's about forming a child at the deepest level. And so when you and I started talking, I had had a chance to present at a Q conference, kind of like a TED conference, I had 18 minutes to basically explain classical Christian education, which isn't much time to do much of anything, which, by the way, is the length of this podcast. We better talk faster. But at any rate, I was struggling with how in the world do I explain this thing. And I remember talking with you and others for the first time about this idea that it is not just getting you equipped for the, your college future. It is about forming a soul. And at that point, Ambrose was reading a book that had recently come out, James K. Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom. And maybe talk a little bit about that, because you've you kind of walked that path for the school and saw even this school go through some changes of understanding this education is... Well, yeah, at the time the book came out, we as a school had already headed down this track because it isn't actually that new to classicists. Um, Aristotle and uh, Augustine, two classical thinkers, uh, one Christian, one not, were very much along these lines. And so they, the idea that um, what we're doing is cultivating affections in the souls of children to love those, uh, to love virtue, really, is something that was not um, readily evident to me initially. And uh, when you, when when you were contacting me, and you, we were kind of. I suppose in our educational understanding, we were just sort of pretty close. Um, I may have been a year or two ahead because I had been running a school maybe a little longer than you, I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, we met up at that conference, and we we, we found out we had kids all in the same grades and ages. Uh, they're all still in school. And I think both of us were seeing a lot of this fruit and thinking, how can we, how can we communicate this to people outside? I mean, it's like the best-kept secret, but... 
It's so we, hard to explain. It's so hard to explain. It's my good friend Gordon Pennington, who is, some of you know, head of marketing, marketed for Tommy Hilfiger and Apple and Mercedes. He's been out here three times, loves what we're doing. He's consistently saying to us, guys, I don't know anything more complicated to explain than classical, which most people kind of their eyes glaze over, think it's old stuff. Christian, everybody thinks they know what that means, and then education. So these are, this is just complicated to kind of convey, but you're right. It is the most amazing thing when you realize the very thing you want for your child is ultimately to be this deeply committed follower of Christ. But what does that look like? They've got to be formed. And so back to James K. Smith, his idea, it's, I guess if I make it as simple as I can, what do our kids love is the question. And I, I see this all the time. Like we, we want them to absorb, and maybe that's a good word. It's like you put, you put a child or you, into an environment or you put a person into any environment. I majored in sociology, and part of it to me was fascinating that everybody thinks today they're individuals, but actually people become very much like the community in which they've been placed. So you to stick a kid into the inner city. Especially in those ages. In those formative ages, yeah. absolutely. You take a kid and a young child or young boy or girl and put them into the inner city or into a, you know, into a gang environment, all of a sudden their language changes, their dress changes, their attitude change, their world, everything is different. And their loves change. And their loves. And ultimately, that's another way. It's not just their dress, but it's what they love about their dress. What do they value? What, what they see themselves as being valued for. Right. Uh, changes. I mean, it's just the entire perspective is, is new and built from the ground up. Right. Right, and so, and so you know the the building at Ambrose. People think you guys are just being ostentatious. You're doing the Harry Potter thing. The whole idea is we want to create, and even the environment exudes truth, goodness, and beauty. So that if you consistently immerse yourself in an environment that's true, good, and beautiful, all of a sudden you look at something else and you go, "That's not true, good, and beautiful," because you you have a, something to yeah, benchmark the, off of. The, we talked about this earlier that um, when you, a British person comes to the United States and when they're twenty. Their entire life, you will hear that accent. Mm-hmm. When they come, when they're five, you you will probably never know it um, because they'll enculturate. Exactly. And so we wrongly believe that that enculturation is solely just sort of a materialistic thing. Their their tongue was shaped in such a way by their early language that they could only speak that way. We just assume that it doesn't extend to everything else about them, but it does. And that's the great misnomers, that my kid can go to this school or have this environment for X number of hours in the week, and then they can come over to this one, maybe it's the church, and it's going to counterbalance. It, it, it's, it's really yes. a numbers game. Time equals influence. Where you spend your time, it, I love the idea, immersive, immersive uh, absorption, whatever term you want to use, it just becomes your DNA. And, and, and I was gonna, just uh, looking here at James K. Smith's writings, he talks about orientation to the world is shaped from the body up more than from the head down. Liturgies aim our love to different ends precisely by training our heart through our bodies. And it's funny because you think of classical Christian schools or sort of they kind of the heady, mindful people. But actually, the, the primary thing we're trying to do isn't to cram a bunch of random information, even it may be great books, into their head. It's kind of bottom-up or, or soulish up. We want them to love and to be shaped by these things, much to the example I was just giving about the building, that mm-hmm. this becomes what they love. So, yeah, I mentioned that we both have kids about the same age. My 10-year-old has, uh, has is really, in, in some sense, a picture of what we're talking about here with liturgies. You, you know, so like you said, but what does that mean? Litur- I'm thinking trash it's when you say that. What does that word mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, it's just a practice. It's, it's a repeated practice that you do um, as you worship. And when we think of worship, we're not talking about Sunday school or Sunday worship. We're talking about living life in such a way that... So is there a liturgy of brushing your teeth? Yep. 
and there's a liturgy. Uh, there's a liturgy of opening the doors for um, you know people who are coming behind you, or not there's opening the door because that's politically incorrect, or, and you wouldn't want to offend somebody. Exactly. Which I used to. Uh, uh, um, but yes. but my ten year old. One of the interesting things is is I have terrible handwriting. Uh, because uh, in the public school system, they don't believe, especially in this day and age, that many of them don't even teach cursing cursive anymore. So they teach cursing. Cursing, cursing yes. yes. But cursive isn't taught because it's impractical. We're going to be all using keyboards to communicate. There's no point in actually printing or writing. So the loss there is the cultivation of the liturgy of cursive brings you to a way of appreciating the beauty of script. And the beauty of script is is it's an art form that... Um, especially given some of your background, Coca-Cola was um, was just the handwriting mm-hmm. of one of the marketing people who put it out there. Logo in the world, right? right. And it's because it's a script but, that is beautiful, but, and the beauty has been stripped out of our kids, and now we just tell them it's just not practical. Well, that's what I was going to ask, right? I mean, but what is it really? I mean, so somebody's listening, going, "Well, I don't really care that my kid can't write cursive. They can, you know, it, why? But we're not talking about just the mechanics of writing cursive. We're talking about having a we're An robbing appetite. them right. of the beauty of a civilized society to create beauty with your hand in a regular way. And it sounds kind of heady and high, but when we're talking about joy again, when we're talking about what makes someone joyful, having those liturgies, those things that you practice and do, and I picked a very small, tiny one. Handwriting is just a very small thing, but there's a thousand of them. There's, do we line up in straight lines? Do we walk in such a way as to be respectful of the building? Do we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and where this translates, of course, is someone, well, that's great, you know, behavior modification for little kids. And what we're talking about, we have conversations all the time with business leaders in the community who have no tie to the Ambrose School, but they say we are so distraught trying to find new employees that are out of college or ready to enter the job market that are that have work, work habits that are consistent and... and that they're people of character and, and, you know, focus. I mean, these are things that the output of this kind of education is not only hopefully one who loves Christ, but they've kind of climbed the summit to the top of the mountain and they've been able to endure and they've got the ability to make wise decisions. Yeah, I mean, when I was in the business world, if you think about it, you know, the pithy things that anyone would say would be, well, gee, if you teach kids discipline, they'll be on time to meetings, et cetera. And um, I think that, that we actually even shortchange it at that, because really what, what another thing business people want is uh, imaginative kids, kids who can, you know, employees who can actually think of a more creative way to solve a problem. And that's what we do in classical education in the same way. Yeah. And I love this idea that, you know, in this podcast, we've got, we're going to have so many exciting guests on here, some locally, some national, just talking about this whole enterprise of how do we more effectively shape the next generation to love what is true, good and beautiful. And there's, there's some really good practical things and some great thoughtful discussion, and we'd love to have interaction interaction from those who are out there in our community. But welcome to episode one. This has been a lot of fun. We'll be back soon for episode two. Thanks for listening. 